Amen. What a great song. That, that's something that we just sang that you can see David singing and crying out about through this whole book of Psalms. My name is David Rudy. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the pastor here, and I'd love to meet you after the service. It was really good to... Oh, yes. Thank you. I almost forgot. Thank you. Kids, you can go to your class right now. Yes, it's been... I, I missed last week, and I'm rusty. All right, yes, just follow Miss Amy back there. I see Brooke back there. She's going to help you out, kids, through that door. Yeah, I was gone last week, and Julie and our, Julie's whole side of the family, we were in Tennessee, so we were a couple hours away. Uh, we had a great time. It was a wonderful visit, but I tell you, I really missed being with my church family, and we were able, I was able to kind of like sneak a few peeks at the online service and, and watch half of it. It was great to see. Ben did a fabulous job on Psalm 130. But there's nothing that can replace worshiping in person, being in the room, feeling the Holy Spirit's presence, uh, just hearing the voices. It has been so good to be back to sing with you. And I'm really excited about finishing up our series in the book of Psalms. So uh, before we get there, I want to frame this psalm with a little context. All right? So towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry... Uh, this is going to be found in Matthew 22. Jesus is actually challenged by the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They asked Jesus a question about the resurrection. As usual, Jesus astounded them with an answer. Their jaws were dropped. They couldn't believe it. And then word gets around to the Pharisees that Jesus had just silenced the Sadducees. So the Pharisees want to get in on this. And they bring a lawyer, just an expert on the law, to Jesus to try to trip him up. And this lawyer asked Jesus a question, what is the greatest commandment? You may remember Jesus' answer to this. He didn't just give him one commandment. He gave him the two greatest commandments. The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus is basically saying, if you do these two, if you love God and you love your neighbor, everything else will fall into place. Well, the Pharisees were, again, stunned. They were silenced. And just as they were, you know, ready to back off, uh, Jesus turns the tables on them, and he asks them a question of his own. This is Matthew 22, uh, verse 43. He says, who do you think the Christ is. Whose son is he? And the way Matthew conveys this, you can tell that the Pharisees feel like they've just gotten off the hook and they have this sigh of relief. Oh, good, this is a softball question. We know this. We know who, who the Christ is. Well, he's, he's the son of David, they, they confidently exclaim. And here's Jesus' response. Matthew 22, verse 43. This is Jesus. Jesus says, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, being led of the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And Matthew finishes this account of this story by saying, The Pharisees walked away in silence. They could not answer him a word, and they dared not ask him any more questions ever again. So it's like the cancel police barked really loud, but their bark was louder than their bite, and they walked away with their tail between their legs, and they did not want to mess with Jesus anymore. And if you've been with us at all this summer, 
through this series, you know exactly where we're going with this. Jesus' answer was a quote from one of the Psalms. Psalm 110. That's where we're going to be today. He quoted this Psalm, which happens to be the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. I know, again, we have heard almost, almost every Psalm we've been in this summer has been one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament, but this one is actually the song that was quoted the most. And when Jesus brings this psalm up, he's pointing us to the reason why. Jesus took an apparently a straightforward and easy question, and he shook the lawyer and the rest of the Pharisees with a quote from the psalm that they already knew by heart. And here's what Jesus is getting at if you haven't picked up on it already. If David called his natural descendant, the Messiah, his Lord... It could only be because the one to come would somehow be greater than David. And King David was the greatest king. So how could this one to come be greater? The only way is if he's not a mere man and he is divine. That's where Jesus is going with this. So let's pick it up in Psalm 110. This is a psalm that is 100% about Jesus Christ. There's nothing in it about it that David writes about himself. Most of these psalms, it parallels a situation David found himself in. There is no earthly parallel to Psalm 110. We're ending our series right here because this psalm has one subject and one resounding truth. Jesus reigns over all. We're going to see how wonderful that news really is. Does anyone need some good news this morning? Yeah? I see some smiles. I see some head nods. If you need some good news this morning, if you need someone to hold on to, some truth that you can look to, some hope that you can cling to, Jesus reigns over everything. And even in this sin-cursed world with hate and violence and scary unknowns, one day every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin by reading Psalm 110, and then we will break down the four specific ways that Jesus reigns. Verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning dew, your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will, shudder, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Our first response today, number one, is to magnify the powerful reign of Christ. In verse 1, you may notice that the first Lord is in all caps. We've gone over this a few times in Psalms. But that always tips us off to the fact that the all caps Lord is Yahweh. This is the personal name for God the Father. And then the second Lord is not in all caps. This is Adonai. Adonai here could only be one person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And on Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he made the same exact distinction between King David and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to be in a few different passages today, like actually a few more than normal. We're going to, we're going to jump around. So if you want to take your Bible and turn with me to Acts 2, I really felt led 
just to read this account to you uh, of Peter preaching at the inception of the church. And you can see exactly where he got this from Psalm 110. Acts 2.29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's conclusion from these verses is as valid today when he quoted it 2,000 years ago as it, as it is right now. And look at verses 37 and, and 41, and you can see the response here that you have to have from this truth. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You will never find lasting peace. You will never find hope that's a confident expectation that all wrongs will be made right until you meet Jesus Christ, until you know him. Jesus reigns over all, but he doesn't force you into submission. He has given you the free moral choice as an image bearer of God with a soul to accept or to reject his love. And Philippians 2 says that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can do that right now. And I know we're coming out of the gate swinging here today, but you can acknowledge him now. Or you can acknowledge him when it's too late. It's your choice. The choice is yours to confess your sin and put your faith in Jesus or go your own way and die apart from him. So you can repent and believe right now. And I really felt led to show you that aspect of truth because there's really two responses. This message of Psalm 110 is for those who don't know Jesus and it's also for those of us who are already walking with Jesus. In the ancient world, though, to sit at a person's right hand wasn't just to occupy a place of honor. It also meant to share in the rule. So it signified participation and royal dignity and power. Right now, Jesus is at God's right hand, ruling over all things in heaven and on earth. And Jesus' rule is God's doing. It has nothing to do with us. He's doing it whether we like it or not. We can fight the lordship and be broken by it as he makes us his footstool or we can submit to it in humble obedience and praise. So the question you have to ask yourself 
and give yourself an answer to is what is your image of Jesus Christ? What's your view of the king? Do you think of Jesus as a king reigning at the right hand of the throne of God? I really want you to think about that because most people don't think of Jesus this way at all. They really don't. You know, we've heard the jokes on the, from the comedians on Netflix. You've felt the, the pressure and people make light of Jesus Christ in your own workplace. We all know good and well that a lot of people look at Jesus like a good old Santa Claus who's a giver of some good gifts, gives us some nice things. So many people don't have the correct view of Jesus. There's three broad ways, I think, that most people look at Jesus. And I don't want to oversimplify this, so just stick with me here. Um, this is a nuanced thing, but here are three broad categories that have a lot of application. The first way is the baby in the manger view of Jesus. These people think of Jesus as a sweet, innocent figure, you know, sentimental value here. A lot of good people are in this camp. You know, their family believed in Jesus. They appreciate the nostalgic, good vibes and the morals of a, of a bygones era that are associated with it. And this version of Jesus is all love, but it's missing, missing a realistic view of sin, the reason why Jesus came. Another view that people have of Jesus Christ is this ideological revolutionary. That's the image they have of Jesus. And this is someone who loves the sight of Jesus that was counterculture. He was against the system. And whatever their thing is, they love that Jesus was like, you know, out there. And he went for that. There's a lot of examples of this. And one example of this that I just saw recently was a tweet by Rain Wilson. And many of you might know who that is. I'll just leave that unsaid. But Rain Wilson, he tweeted this. The metamorphosis of Jesus Christ from a humble servant of the abject poor to a symbol that stands for gun rights, prosperity theology, anti-science, limited government that neglects the destitute, and fierce nationalism is truly the tra strangest transformation in human history. Now let me explain. Some Christians wouldn't see this quote as a problem at all. But I use this quote as an example to show you how deceptive half-truths can be. There is a lot of truth here. Jesus was a servant. He did go to the outcasts and the poor, the broken, the needy. They were the first to trust Jesus Christ. But that's not all that Jesus is. At the same time, there are definitely a few things in this tweet that you know, Christians can take note of. I don't, ag I don't agree that those are things that you should be known for. And if that's the picture of Jesus Christ that you're presenting to the lost, you are doing it wrong. But Rain Wilson's view of Jesus is this other common image of Jesus Christ. It's that he was a man who broke down barriers and overturned the system, but it misses the full picture of Jesus Christ. Now, again, did Jesus have long hair and live outdoors without a home? Yes, that's true. But we can't box him into the 21st century hippie construct. He was an ideological revolutionary, just like he humbled himself and came into this world as a baby in a manger, but there's more to him than just that. We're talking about Jesus as a reigning king over all of the earth. Here's one other view that a lot of people have of Jesus. With partial truth that misses the whole truth. It's the sacrificial example view of Jesus. This one isn't as common today as the other two. Uh, 
but it still rejects the reigning lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is more from your like mainline denominations. You know, terrible pastors for decades have espoused this image of Jesus. And it eventually leads people to look at Jesus the other two ways. But it goes like this. He gave his life as an example of love that motivates and inspires us to love others. Doesn't that sound nice? I mean, a lot of people have gone a lot, gotten a lot of miles from that. And again, this sentiment is partly true with one glaring mistake. Jesus didn't give his life to set a moral example. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many to save those from death, the death that we deserve, and to give us liberty when we were in bondage from our sin. He didn't just give his life as an example of love to motivate and inspire us to love others. He gave his life out of love, which changes us to love more others more deeply. So in this sacrificial example view of Jesus, I would say it's the most dangerous because it's devoid of Jesus' divinity. It doesn't account for his resurrection at all, and it always leads to one of the other two. And this view is solely focused on the cross, and it misses the real reason that he voluntarily came to the cross, which is sin, and it misses the after effects of the cross, which is his resurrection. So do you see how all three of these views of Jesus on their own are false images of our Lord and Savior? You have to have the correct view of Jesus Christ. When you catch a glimpse of the mighty power of Jesus Christ, you can't help but worship him with awe and reverence. Psalm 110 is revealing the full story of who Jesus is. He is your Lord. You are his. He is yours. However, you're not just pals. And I have tried, I, I have talked to so many people who look at it this way. And as, as I was thinking about this, my mind was just filled with friends over the years. I mean, I think of my, my great uncle. You know, he loved to work on uh, old Porsches and fix them up. He had a very colorful mouth. He got Agent, Agent Orange in Vietnam and he died. And I remember my dad and I were talking with him right before he died. We knew he was going to die soon. And it was like, hey, Murray, where's, where are you at with Jesus? He's like, oh, we're good, we're good. I hope so, but so many people have this, Jesus is my homeboy view, like we're good, they have no fruit in their life, and we can't judge hearts, we don't know, but many times when you strip it back, you will find out that their view of Jesus is missing this aspect of him being a ruling, reigning king that's Lord over all. He is your Lord and master, you are servant and disciple. And that means you don't live However you want to live, you have a mission and a purpose that is greater than yourself. Jesus is infinitely above you in every way. So the question is, are you living that way? There's an old Presbyterian pastor named Walter Chantry who wrote a book on Psalm 110 and just two other psalms. And he called this book Praises to the King of Kings. And this entire book is about this point. But he said about this verse, Jesus is a king to be honored, confessed, obeyed, and worshipped. When you see Jesus this way, it makes his love and his sacrifice for you so much more real. It changes everything. And in response, we love him more deeply. We aren't just his friends. But the really amazing thing is we still are actually friends of the king, and that's incredible. 
But he's not just an example. He's not just a symbol of peace. He's not just someone who came and upset the apple cart ideologically. He is a personal savior, and he can be yours. Magnify the powerful reign of Jesus Christ. That's verse 1. Now look again with me at verses 2 and 3, and we will see the second way that Jesus reigns. Back in Psalm 110. Let me get there myself. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The second truth here about Jesus reigning that we need to apply, number two, is exalt the spiritual reign of Christ. The second stanza of this song speaks of how Jesus directs his witnesses from Zion. And the two phrases of this section identify what Jesus' spiritual reign is like. The first one is in the midst of your enemies. So if this psalm were about an earthly king, it would never, ever speak of ruling in the midst of enemies. That's just not how human kings rule, right? Uh, they make boundaries, they defend their land, confront and fight their enemies. So this is pretty unique. This is not what we're used to seeing. This is telling us that our king's reign is a spiritual reign. His reign infiltrates the hostile powers of this world through his people. And who are his people right now? The answer to that is just to look around. Who, who are you sitting with here? If you were a Christian, if you were one of Jesus' people, this is describing you in verses 2 through 3. Here's your job description. The second phrase that jumps out to me. They offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. To be holy is to be different, to be set apart. We don't think the same way the world thinks. We don't act the same way the world acts. Martin Luther said of this verse that we are to fight for Christ by suffering, by faith, and by preaching God's word. When he saw this verse, that's what he said. The church has always gotten into trouble when it has tried to just Christianize society and miss the individual personal relationship side of things. Our focus needs to be on sharing Jesus with the lost individuals, not conforming our society to Christian standards. The reality is we are living in the midst of enemies. And in our country, we haven't really felt that to the fullest extent for a really long time. That's starting to change. But we live in the world. We're not of the world. We can't go out of the world. We are here right where the Lord wants us. So how do we pull this off? James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. And I've, I have this entire series in Psalms. I've really learned a lot from James Montgomery Boyce's teaching in the Psalms. It's a very like devotional read. It's not super deep, but it's very, very good. And if anyone wants to look further into the Psalms, I recommend that. But this is what he says. Offer yourself freely through three, three Ps. Participation, persuasion, and prayer. Participation. This is loving your city. Contribute to the community. Show them the love of Jesus by every appropriate way you can. Participate where you can, when you can. This is, this is being a light that shines in the darkness. And then you have persuasion. Christ has given us all the great commission. Go and make disciples. We have to be his witnesses. We aren't here to coerce them into being good people. Jesus is the only one who can change their heart. We don't have all the answers, but we know the one who does. We give an answer to everyone who asks us for the hope 
that is in us with gentleness and respect, sharing your faith daily has to be one of your goals. It's been one of our church's goals this summer. And then the third way that we are to live amongst Christ's enemies, who in turn make us their enemies, is with prayer. We pray because we need his power, his presence, and his wisdom. We can't do this alone. We need each other. We need to talk to our God and our Savior. And I actually like the way most other modern translations translate verse 3. I love the ESV. I preach from the ESV. But this is one of those few verses in the ESV that I, I, I'm not crazy about personally. But they, but they put it this way. Your people will volunteer in your day of battle. You may have in, your, in front of you it says, your troops will be willing on your day of battle. The Lord Jesus Christ has an army of volunteers that are to go out and to reflect his glory as living, breathing statues. We weren't always willing. We were once hostile to Christ, just like others still are. But when you see the power and you exalt his spiritual reign, you feel the grace and the mercy of God in your life and something happens. You become a willing volunteer that's ready to go out. This last week in our life group, uh, Brother Aaron brought up a really awesome point that we discussed uh, on, on Wednesday night. And he was talking about this balance that, that we all need to have as Christians. It really fits within this realm of participation, persuasion, and prayer. Uh, but we all have like three arrows, right? This arrow that's going up between us and our relationship with God. How we're spending time with him in prayer, reading his word. Then this inward arrow, like how we're focusing on our, you know, what we need to do. Like, are we getting the community we need? Are, are, we, are we doing the right things physically with our nutrition, our sleep, which will affect us spiritually? That inward arrow needs to be focused the right way. And then there's an outward arrow, how we're using the gifts that God has given us. Are, are, are we actually now spreading truth and sharing that with others? You think you can get too much of the, of the up arrow? I mean... You wouldn't think so, but if all you're doing is focusing on this upward relationship and you're not giving anything out and you're not letting it internalize in your heart and change your heart, what happens? Pride sets in. There's a lot of Christians that get prideful and they don't do anything for the kingdom like they should be doing. They have a lot of head knowledge. So you have to have a balance between all three of those arrows. Use what you're learning from God and your relationship with God. Let it internalize in your heart change the way you think, and then it's going to motivate and inspire you to go out. All three of those arrows have to be in harmony. So how are you doing with reaching out? These all take participation, persuasion, and prayer. Exalt the spiritual reign of Christ by participating wherever God has you. Stay close to him. Feed on his word. Renew your mind. Share the good news. Compel them to come to find the life in Jesus that they desperately need. Now, the next verse, verse 4, is really deep, okay? And we could easily have like an hour-long podcast on the order of Melchizedek, all right? And I know a few of you are like, oh, yes, bring it on, David. Let's do that. Can we do that for the next season of the Doxa Dialogue? Others of you, like my wife, would be like, I don't think I would listen to an hour-long podcast on the order of Melchizedek. We could really take a deep dive into this. We're not. Julie helps me not geek out over this kind of stuff in the Bible when it comes to Sunday morning. Um, so I'm not going to give you everything there is to know about Melchizedek. We won't do that. But I do want to at least give you an idea of what we're talking about. Whet your appetite a little bit. 
and then explain how this verse describes the next element of Jesus Christ's reign. So look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The third point here today that we have to apply about the reign of Jesus Christ is this. Number three, respect the priestly reign of Christ. So what's going on? Notice again, the all caps Lord, all right? Yahweh has taken an oath. That seems pretty important. He will never change his mind on this. Okay, he's talking to the other Lord, the Adonai. This is Jesus Christ, who is sitting at his right hand. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I mean, is this a strange thing to emphasize? At first glance, if we don't even know who Melchizedek is, it's like, maybe, I, I, why, what, what's going on here? Well, Christians need to have an idea about who Melchizedek is, because this is obviously very, very important. And, uh, the reason most Christians don't know a lot about Melchizedek is actually understandable. Uh, there's not a lot about him in Scripture, okay? We have three verses in Genesis 14. We have this cryptic message about Melchizedek right here in Psalm 110. And then a thousand years later, Melchizedek is mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews. And that's it. That's all we have about Melchizedek. So let's start in Genesis. In chapter 14... Abraham had just succeeded in rescuing his nephew Lot. And Lot was a mess, okay? This is before he even left the city of Sodom. But at this time, the king of Sodom actually had stolen a lot of Lot's uh, possessions. And, and the king of Sodom was in this coalition with a few other kings. And they had taken all of his stuff. And Abram, Abraham wasn't Abraham yet. God hadn't changed his name. He was Abram at this point. Abram gathers 318 men goes into the cover of darkness, attacks the king of Sodom and these other kings, gets back all of Lot's stuff and gives it back to Lot. Did you know about Abraham's warrior side? I mean, that's there in his younger years. It's pretty awesome. Read about it in Genesis 14. So Abraham does this. He, he, he gives this gift back to Lot, his, all of his stuff. He has some other spoils. And then, and then this figure Melchizedek shows up in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, Abram responds by giving Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had just won from this battle. Okay, And this is actually... Also where we get the 10% tithe principle that, that we still carry out today. But there's a lot of ideas on who Melchizedek is. There's this ancient Jewish view that many Jews still hold to this day that he was Shem, and one of Noah's three sons. And believe it or not, the genealogical math actually works out on that theory. You know, Shem with his pre-flood blood lived way longer than anybody lived after the flood. I know, I'm telling you, that podcast could definitely go an hour long, okay? Yeah, I, I know some people want this. <laughs> um, some people think that Melchizedek was an angel. A lot of Bible scholars believe that he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. But it's hard to prove any of those ideas, really, when we only have three verses on him in Genesis 14. But at the very least, we can take him exactly as the author of Hebrews presents him. An important man who comes onto the scene suddenly 
without any prior explanation, and there's a reason for that that we're going to get to. But if I had a gun to my head, I don't think Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And if you want to debate that, don't worry. I probably won't debate you on that. I just don't have time to. <laughs> but I definitely think he was a type of Christ. He was most definitely a type of Jesus Christ. His name does mean king of righteousness. His title, king of Salem, means king of peace. He is a priest king. And that is obviously pointing us to Jesus Christ. So in this psalm, we have already seen that God has given Jesus dominion over his enemies. We just saw in verses 2 through 3 the extension of his rule for those who are his willing servants. Right now, that's the church. And verse 4 makes it clear that Jesus is also a priest. Now, this would have been a shockingly novel idea to anyone who lived in the time of David. The priestly and kingly functions never overlapped. But here's the key. And I believe the reason Melchizedek is so mysterious in that he shows up seemingly out of nowhere. We don't know his lineage, anything about him. He predates the Levitical priestly order. This makes him a symbol of the eternal priestly order. The Jewish priesthood was not forever. You know, they, the priests started when they were 30. They were done when they were 60. And even now, in general, the followers of Jesus, the, you know, the Jews don't have to have these priests anymore. They've been replaced. Christians don't need this anymore. They're not necessary because Jesus came as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world. So let's focus on what this is teaching because it's very important. Jesus is a priest after the never-ending order of Melchizedek. Jesus fulfilled the covenant and established the new covenant. Jesus made the ultimate atonement by offering his sinless life willingly as a sacrifice for the punishment of our sins. Jesus Christ's priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is superior because it never needs to be repeated. His priestly work on the cross is done once for all. And this is exactly what Hebrews 10 says. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And if you have, have your Bible right there, go ahead and just turn to that. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So what does that mean for you and I right now? For starters, let's set the ceremonial religious law down and put your faith in Jesus Christ. But Hebrews 10 says it better than I ever could. Here's some application for you. Hebrews 10, this passage goes on. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, sprinkled clean. Cleanse us from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works. Do not neglect to meet together as the matter of some is, but encourage one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you catch all of that? There was a lot there, okay? 
You might have to go back and review that, but here's a quick review for you. I got them all up here for you. Draw near with confidence. Ditch your guilt. Hold unswervingly to our hope. Spur each other on with love and good works. Don't ever forsake the assembling together. Be faithful on Sunday. Encourage one another and look for his return. These are the responses that we have to have. That's how you can respect the priestly reign of Jesus Christ. That's pretty freeing, isn't it? This is not restrictive. This is empowering. This is what we all crave. So, so far in this text, we have magnify the powerful reign of Christ, exalt the spiritual reign of Christ, respect the priestly reign of Christ, and there's one more aspect of Jesus Christ's reign in verses 5 through 7. I'll read it again. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. These last three verses of Psalm 110 are about Jesus Christ's final judgments. And this is no laughing matter. In these verses, God the Father and God the Son are seen working together. His people, us, from verses 2 to 3, are no longer on the scene. And he is ready to judge and destroy all who have taken up arms against his glory. These verses are saying the same thing we saw in the second message of this series, all the way back in Psalm 2, which says this of Jesus. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like pottery. This is a heavy topic, okay? But Christ desperately wants you to run to the Father. He gives you chance after chance after chance. And if you haven't done that yet, you have a chance to do that right now. But to be consistent with his character, he must judge sin and rebellion. He wouldn't be a just God if he didn't do that. So he is patient. He is full of mercy. But he is still unwavering on judgment day. And when it comes to the judicial reign of Christ, it will be unwavering. It will be swift. Peter talks about this in his second letter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The judicial reign of Christ is terrifying for those who do not know him. And even for us who know him, who have loved ones who do not, this should motivate us to get busy. Even though he is long-suffering towards every single person, eventually they will get what they ask for, separation from God. And we have no right, no standing to, to judge God and how he will judge sinners. He can judge wickedness any way he wants to. Sin is against his holy character. And if you're rejecting the true king, re rebelling against the righteous reign of Jesus Christ, this is the way it ends. 
Psalm 110 concludes with an emphasis on his power and might. The prophet king, Jesus Christ, who protects his people. But do you see the difference between how the Messiah treats his own and how he treats those outside of his kingdom who never bowed their knee to him? This is not a game. Faith isn't just something that's supposed to help you. All roads do not lead to heaven. Jesus said that no one comes to the Father but by me. This is what John Calvin said about this verse. As a shepherd is gentle towards his flock, but fierce and formidable towards wolves and thieves, in like manner, Christ is kind and gentle towards those who commit themselves to his care, while they who willfully and obstinately reject his yoke shall feel with what awful and terrible power he is armed. If you spend your entire life rejecting his love, saying thanks but no thanks to his sacrifice, you are effectively spitting in the face of our Savior and what he did for you. And God will eventually give you what you want, separation from him. Here's the last line. He will drink from the brook, by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Worship team, you can come up right here. I think this is an amazing poetical image of what Jesus is going to do after he defeats his enemies. When most people are coming off the battlefield, what, what, what are they like? They're winded, they're exhausted, they're dirty, right? They, they maybe need some, a doctor to help them out, tend to some wounds. They need to at least, the very least, sleep and heal. So here's the imagery of this song. What does Jesus do after this? Well, he just, he's walking, he sees a brook by the way, he bends down on one knee, drinks up some water, lifts up his head, and walks on triumphantly. It's such a poetical way of saying, no sweat. Jesus is the mighty king who reigns in power, and he does this with no sweat at all. That's who we're dealing with takes a sip of that water, and casually strolls on. So we all have a choice in how we're going to respond to this truth. The truth is that Jesus reigns over all. So how are you going to react to that? There are a lot of things that you can do with your life. I mean, you could make as much money as possible, right? Go all in and stress out over the stock market, freak out over the economy every five years go through those ups and downs. You can put everything you have into preserving our country. You can get angry at everyone who's letting it slip away. You can wallow in your own mistakes. You can live for the next party and just live that life that's focused on the pleasure of sin that only lasts for a season, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Now, of course, I'm not saying that you don't need to work hard and be a good steward of your finances Love and cherish your freedoms. Enjoy the beautiful world that we've been given. Do all of those things in their proper perspective. But if you live for one of those things over your reigning king, in the end, you will be crushed beneath his foot if you don't know him. At the end of the day, the choice is yours to become his footstool or to honor his reign. It's the throne and it's the footstool. At the end, there's really only two ways. Two ways that people are going. 
And this message is the entire book of Psalms. Really, all the Psalms point to this. Jesus reigns. This song specifically is a call for sinners to repent and find salvation. This is the good news that you need right here. And this psalm is also a rally for followers of Jesus to get close to their comforter, to move forward with their Savior, and above all, to worship their God. Even Christians, myself included, can lose our view of Jesus as a reigning king. There's a lot of ways we can do that. We can elevate ourselves too high. We can get our eyes on other things. We can live for this earthly, temporal kingdom rather than his eternal kingdom. But don't get stuck looking at Jesus as a buddy, looking at Jesus as someone who can just come there when you need him and simply a giver of good gifts. He's more than that. Jesus Christ reigns over all. Let's exalt him, let's magnify him, and let's enjoy him forever. Would you stand with me? And we're going to sing two songs in response to this truth today and praise our Savior for who he is. One name is high. 